Self-driving cars aren't the future. They're here and they work. Self-driving cars have traveled hundreds of thousands of miles up and down the California coast and through cities all without human intervention. The question is not if they'll replace cars, but how quickly. They don't need to be perfect, they just need to be better than us. Human drivers, by the way, kill 40,000 people a year with cars just in the United States. Given that self-driving cars don't blink, don't text while driving, don't get sleepy or stupid, it's easy to see them being better than humans because they already are. Welcome to Moonshot, I'm Christopher Lawson, and you've been listening to YouTuber CGP Grey discuss the future of autonomous vehicles in his video essay from 2014, Humans Need Not Apply, a future that is already here. Now if you're listening to this podcast while driving, chances are your car already has some autonomous features. Cruise control has been around since the 1940s and is one of the first examples of automating part of the driving experience. While this feature is only considered to be the first level of automation, it really shows what's possible as more parts of the driving experience become autonomous, to the point where steering wheels and gear sticks become an optional extra. But why aren't we riding around in cars that drive themselves? And how long will it be before we can walk into a car dealership and pick up a brand new self-driving car? That's coming up on this episode of Moonshot. And before we get started, a quick disclaimer. As with our episode on designing a driverless city, one of the companies that we'll be talking about in this episode is Uber, a company that my co-host Andrew Moon actually works for. So for that reason, he's going to sit this one out. But before we get into it, here's a word from our sponsors. vehicle itself at when we started out was rather um, underwhelming. We would creep along at just a few centimeters per second on these bike paths. So it was, uh, it was not the most impressive to begin with. By the, by the end, we had gotten a faster vehicle and I had optimized things to the point where we could or Alvin could actually drive at up to 55 miles an hour on, on uh, the highway. This is Dean Pomelo, one of the early pioneers of autonomous vehicles. I'm a PhD, got my PhD in 1992 from Carnegie Mellon University. And I was one of the first people, at least in the United States, to work in the area of autonomous cars. Companies like Waymo and Uber have led the way in autonomous vehicle development for the past few years. But the concept has been around much longer than you'd think, with researchers and engineers developing autonomous vehicles for decades. Dean started his career working on artificial neural networks, which are the backbone of autonomous vehicles and many artificial intelligence systems. But back in the late 80s, the technology was brand new. Nobody really had a practical application for what to do with it. And that's where Dean comes in. So I sort of got into self-driving cars through the back door by trying to find an interesting um, application of this technology of artificial neural networks that everyone was excited about. I, as a sort of naive new PhD student, thought, hey, maybe we can apply these neural networks to drive a a self-driving car. And so that became my PhD project. 
Dean combined his interest in artificial neural networks with a project Carnegie Mellon was working on for the Department of Defense. It was called NavLab. And there were already plenty of people at the university working on this idea of having a car that drove itself. But most of the other concepts involved a vehicle being pre-programmed to move in a particular way or using edge detection sensors. But it was Dean who wondered whether this new concept of artificial neural networks could be used to help the car actually learn to drive on its own. And I came in and I said, you know, maybe we can use an end-to-end learning system based on artificial neural networks. Maybe we can feed an artificial retina the raw camera image coming from the camera on board the NavLab and train it by watching a human to steer, you know, to figure out what the right steering direction was just looking at the images themselves. Dean named his new system the Autonomous Land Vehicle in a Neural Network, or ALVIN. The way it worked was a human driver would drive the NavLab for about five minutes while the ALVIN system watched, and that is it adjusted its, uh, you know, the weights in the artificial neural network to map the images that it was being fed as input into a steering direction, you know, turn this hard to the left in order to follow the curve that it saw in the video camera image that it was being uh, fed. And so uh, it was, was basically simply learning by example, learning by watching a human drive, how to mimic that same sort of um, stimulus response. You know, if you see a curve to the right, turn the steering wheel to the right. Now, before you go putting any pictures in your mind about what this vehicle may have looked like, remember that this was the late 80s and early 90s. Computing systems were far less powerful than they are today, and they were significantly larger, which in turn meant you needed a much bigger vehicle than the sleek, autonomous cars that you may see today. The first one was a... um, was a blue Chevy panel van, very much like sort of, you know, your larger ambulances that you see today. Um, and it had a 5,000 watt generator on board and this uh, very bulky supercomputer, mini supercomputer, basically, that uh, another faculty member at CMU had designed and had fabricated um, on board the vehicle that sucked down most of that, you know, 5,000 watt of of power so and and the interesting thing was i did a calculation a couple years ago and it it was impressive at the time but the amount of computing power we had was like one sixth of the computing power that a iwatch an apple iwatch has today Now, something that we've mentioned on the show before is that autonomous systems require an awful lot of data. On modern autonomous vehicles, that might be a gigabyte a second due to all the complex sensors involved and the complexity of the data being collected. But back in the 80s and 90s, that wasn't the case. Computers weren't that powerful, and the camera being used to collect that data was, by today's standards, fairly basic. We had a... a 30 by 32 pixel input retina. So that was about a, you know, 1K, uh, 1K pixels of, of input and only four hidden units, hidden neurons in a single layer uh, connected with uh, 30 different steering directions ranging from hard left to hard right. So we had about 4,000 connections 
versus tens of millions of connections in the latest, uh, you know, uh, deep neural networks that people are using to drive and to do many other things today. Um, and, and that was solely because it took so long to run these neural networks that we couldn't afford to have a lot of, of, of extra connections. But it turns out, you know, at least for the kinds of uh, highway driving and path following that we were doing, um, that low resolution and, and small number of connections was, was sufficient. Now, most of this early autonomous driving occurred on the grounds of Carnegie Mellon University, but every PhD requires a big project, and for Dean that project was to drive his Alvin vehicle 100 miles from Pittsburgh to Lake Erie. The system drove virtually that whole 100 miles uh, under automated control. It was very light traffic. I took the vehicle out on a Sunday morning uh, to make sure there, there wasn't too much traffic on the highway. Um, so it was mostly just steering, not controlling the speed, but it was a very exciting moment to have driven, you know, that far under automated control back in 1991. When you uh, took the vehicle on this 100-mile drive, did you have to get, like, specific permissions to take it out on the road, or did you just go for it? We pretty much just went for it. Um, it was, you know, I, I strongly suspect if we had been candid with the university lawyers about what we were doing we probably would have been prohibited from doing it <laughs> so it was a uh don't ask don't tell sort of situation <laughs> um, and we were very attentive i know i mean I, I was very aware of the shortcomings of the system having developed it myself so i uh was always in the driver's seat with my hands hovering over the wheel and uh had a pretty good idea, you know, looking at the road ahead myself, when the system was likely to work well and when it was likely to have problems. Dean built on the success of Alvin, upgrading the neural network to one which was actually custom designed to be used on an autonomous vehicle, resulting in a system that could watch the road and detect lane markings, meaning the car could steer itself in far more complex conditions. The result was called Rapidly Adapting Lateral Position Handler, or RALF for short. Dean and a colleague of his, Todd Jockham, decided to take RALF on a 2,800 mile or 4,500 kilometer a cross-country trip from Pittsburgh to San Diego. They called it No Hands Across America. That was actually a pun on, there was a Hands Across America fundraiser, I think for, um, for, for Farm Aid, I think it was at the time. And so it was sort of a tongue-in-cheek uh, extension of, of that No Hands Across America. It had its own logo with basically a steering wheel with hands waving above the steering wheel. And the journey was funded by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, as well as the Federal Highway Administration. But Dean and Todd sold t-shirts to pay for additional expenses like hotels and food. And they didn't bother getting any permission from anyone. It was a lot different from today's highly structured, well-funded vehicle tests. It was so early that you know, nobody was even thinking about this. We did get some PR along the trip. Uh, Business Week reporter uh, rode with us through through part of Missouri. But uh, other than that, we kept a pretty low profile with the university attorneys and any other administrative or, um, you know, people who would, would we would have had to get the permission from. I, I still don't know how 
companies do it today and the litigious environment we're in, uh, particularly going across state lines, could get very tricky, I think, if you tried to get permission. Besides a short test run from Pittsburgh to Washington, D.C., Ralph had never actually gone on a long-distance drive, and nobody else had tried this before. It was unprecedented. Dean and Todd would be on high alert, watching for anything that might trip up the guidance systems. The car drove itself for the most part, although occasionally when road conditions changed, a human did have to take the wheel. We stayed mostly on on the highway, and so we expected, you know, there to be uh, pretty nice roads. Um, the longest stretch where we were unable, or where Ralph was unable to drive, was a, a stretch of very freshly painted pavement that didn't even have lane markers on it yet. And so, for for a few miles there, we had to take over. There were a couple times where there was very low sun angle, and we had all kinds of. Uh, bugs splattered on our windshield and stuff where, uh, you know, heading into the setting sun going west, um, that Ralph had a, a little bit of trouble at, at sunset time. The car steered itself for 98% of the journey, and once it reached 55 miles per hour, cruise control took over as well. However, because they were travelling slower than many of the other vehicles, Dean and Todd drove mostly in the slow lane, which meant having to deal with other issues, like exit ramps. We had implemented a very crude solution, and that was uh, to basically blank out through uh, like a, a button on the keyboard of the computer that was next to the, to the driver's seat. You could hit a button and it would basically mask out the uh, right half or the left half of the image in order to tell the system, you know, ignore that part part of the scene uh, to prevent it from getting locked onto a, a, a lane marker that was peeling off to, to take an exit ramp. Um, so the system was able to drive with just one eye open, basically looking at the left half of the image and continue straight rather than get drawn off to, to follow an exit. Now Dean and Todd actually kept a detailed blog of their trip, which is still online. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. But one of the fascinating stories that they share in this blog is actually about dealing with extreme heat. It was fairly hot going across the uh, across the United States in the middle of summer, and so we had trouble keeping the computing that was in the, the back of the vehicle cool. And so uh, at one point, uh, things were, were overheating, and we had to jury rig a duct from the air conditioning which was up front where we the passengers were all the way to the back of the van where all the hot computing hardware was and so it was it was sort of like uh in in the blog we sort of uh tongue-in-cheek played it like it was the apollo 13 mission trying to use what we had on board the vehicle to solve the the terrible problems we were running into you know using the sunscreen that we had to block the sun coming in from the on the windshield as a as a duct to um, duck the cool air back to our overheating computers and solving our problems in a in a clever sort of way almost a decade on from the no hands across america trip 
DARPA created a race for autonomous vehicles with a prize of $1 million for the first team to successfully complete a 142-mile or approximately 230-kilometer course. Nobody won the race in 2004. The furthest any team got was Carnegie Mellon's Sandstorm, which travelled 12 kilometers before being caught on a rock and then catching fire. And we have movement from Stanley, ladies and gentlemen, the start of the DARPA Grand Challenge. The following year, though, they held another race in which five vehicles managed to cross the finish line, with the Stanford racing team crossing the line first in just under seven hours. After no hands across America, it would take another two decades for a self-driving car to make its way across the United States. Delphi took one of its autonomous vehicles from San Francisco to New York in 2015. Of course, this time around, the car was completely autonomous, controlling steering, acceleration, lane changes, and everything. Delphi Automotive is launching a self-driving Audi from San Francisco tomorrow on a 3,500-mile trip to New York City. The computer-driven car will be challenged with a variety of conditions that could never be tested in a lab, from changing weather and terrain to potential road hazards. But don't worry, there will be a human inside, just in case. And we'll continue our deep dive on autonomous vehicles right after this break. to Moonshot, I'm Christopher Lawson, and as we mentioned at the start of the show, most cars already have some degree of automation. And it turns out that there are actually six different levels of autonomy as determined by the Society of Automotive Engineers. The lowest level, obviously, is, is no autonomy. Um, then we start at uh, level one systems, which is effectively what people know as a, as a cruise control system. So um, there's speed regulation of the vehicle, but uh, the driver still needs to maintain um, overall control there. This is Chris Woods. He's the regional president of Chassis Systems Control at Bosch Australia. He works on autonomous vehicle components as well as other safety features in cars. Bosch, in case you're not aware, manufactures components for a lot of the vehicles that you drive today. And Chris broke down the different levels of autonomy for us. Level 2 systems uh, are things like traffic jam assist. um, And these allow the driver to uh, more automated functions where the speed of the vehicle is controlled from zero to, to maximum speed potentially. But the driver always needs to stay monitoring that system. So if something goes wrong, they need to be ready to take over. Level 2 autonomy is what you might see on Tesla's autopilot system or similar systems from Volvo and Mercedes-Benz. This is where we find most autonomous systems are on production cars right now. Level three is when um, effectively the system can operate uh, independent of the driver. They don't need to be there monitoring what's going on. They can perform some other functions, potentially reading emails in the future, but very much in limited driving situations. Now, Audi claimed their A8 vehicle is the first publicly available vehicle to reach level three autonomy. The car can drive itself on divided roads at up to 60 kilometres per hour and manage itself in traffic without user assistance. However, most governments around the world don't yet allow vehicles to be placed into this level of autonomy, something which many manufacturers are working to change. Level four um, then uh, becomes, again, 
more autonomous. Um, full uh, urban taxis are a level four. Uh, type system that we're developing at the moment. Again, somewhat limited in, in geography. So they, when the urban taxis come, there'd be dedicated routes where those vehicles can drive. Level four systems are cars which can, for the most part, drive themselves. They will have a steering wheel and users might have to take over in particular conditions, but mostly they are completely autonomous. And then level five is effectively fully um, ubiquitous, unlimited automated driving. Level 5 autonomy is the holy grail of self-driving cars. It's where cars are completely autonomous. They are built with no steering wheel, no pedals, no gear sticks, none of that stuff that allows you to control the vehicle. And this is where companies like Waymo, Uber and Cruise will eventually be heading. And a lot of the development is happening in Pittsburgh. Places like Pittsburgh, it has a long history um, of robotics there, so that's kind of why that's grown there, though the streets of Pittsburgh are very difficult to navigate and it's an older city. This is Sasha Leckage. She's a transportation reporter at Mashable. So there's not as much actual testing out in the public there. Um, yeah, but Arizona has been a, a hotbed for this. Same with Silicon Valley in, in California. Many states in the US have regulated autonomous vehicles, and earlier this year, the federal government updated their guidelines for testing these systems. But you'll only see self-driving cars on the streets in a few places, with testing centred around Silicon Valley, Arizona and Pittsburgh. Arizona, I don't know if you've ever been, but most of it, especially in big suburban areas outside of Phoenix, are warm most of the year. It's very big, wide streets and boulevards it's not super congested it's very grid like systems it's not like you're winding through random roads there's not very many one ways so these are like ideal conditions for these type of vehicles most autonomous vehicles being tested right now can only function in good weather and on clear days changes in the road surface and weather can actually make it a lot harder for the cars to navigate the roads get cold, the roads get snowy, they get slushy, they get slick, whatever it is, that's another challenge and another situation that they have to be able to handle. And a lot of them aren't ready for that. So they can only handle when the road is, you know, nice and toasty at 90 degrees or whatever it is. I grew up in Canada where weather conditions are pretty brutal in the winter. When we have blizzards in Canada, so all the drivers slow down. Uh, I think autonomous car, you know, has that same insight, which is when visibility is poor, when the range on sensors is, is degraded, it can slow down. But because it has the a diversity of sensors, actually, it's, it's an augmented um, intelligence. So compared to a human, we only have eyesight and from our stereo vision. The combination of radar, LIDAR, and vision, I think, is going to enable the cars to be superpowered in, in bad conditions. That's Sibi Pulikaseril. He's the co-founder and CTO of Baraha, a company that wants to be the eyes of autonomous vehicles. They build LiDAR technology for self-driving cars. And Sibi says their technology works together with the other sensors in the vehicle to map out a detailed picture of the road ahead. The, the cameras give you, you know, color perception and high-resolution images, but they don't work as well as at night or at all at night. Uh, LiDAR works at night and gives you high resolution and, you know, LiDAR can work in some weather conditions like rain and uh, light snow. Radar works in lots of different weather conditions, including fog. So the combination of all of these things gives you a really enhanced sensor suite. 
The companies developing these cars have focused on building systems that implement complex sets of technology, and it's all really important to make sure that the cars work, and they're out there testing them on public roads as extensively as possible. But what happens when it all goes wrong? It is tough to watch an Uber driver going hands-free and slamming into a 49-year-old woman, and it was all captured on Uber's in-car cameras. That horrifying video was released today by police in Tempe, Arizona. And tonight, the investigation by the NTSB continues into what is the first known pedestrian fatality in a self-driving car. That's coming up in the next episode of Moonshot. Moonshot is a production of Lawson Media, and this episode was hosted and edited by me, Christopher Lawson. Research and scripting by Patrick Laverick. Our theme music is by the illustrious Breakmaster Cylinder, and our cover artwork is by Andrew Millist. If you enjoy the show, please help us out by sharing it with a friend. Sharing is caring. And if you really liked it, head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. And if you want to find out more about the show, head across to our website, moonshot.audio. That's all for this episode. We'll see you next time on Moonshot.